Galatians chapter 5. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and one will be brought to you. Galatians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul was God's chosen vessel to reach the Gentile regions with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was hand-selected and sent by the Holy Spirit while he was in the city of Antioch to take Barnabas with him and to go about and begin his ministry in preaching to the Gentiles the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. It didn't take long for word of his ministry and of his message to begin to spread and make its way back to the Christian churches that were in Jerusalem. And the Jews that were there that had a traditional background that was laden with traditions and laws and customs and things that they so strictly had to adhere to from the time of their birth until the time of their death, they caught word that Paul was preaching that a person could be saved by simply believing in Jesus Christ apart from all of that custom and tradition and law. And that message did not sit well with those Jews that were so steeped in that religious system. And so they began to follow the Apostle Paul into the regions where he would preach. And they would declare that his message was invalid. That if a Gentile wanted to come to faith in Christ, that they needed to be circumcised as all the other Jews were. They needed to keep the law of Moses and abide by the customs and sacraments, really, of the Hebrew traditional system. They could not accept simple grace through faith. Now, these legalizers, these Judaizers that were following Paul and polluting his message... They began to be effective in the churches that they came into, the regions. Their message was beginning to work, and the churches were falling into a legalistic, Judaistic form of Christianity that embraced the law, and and they were agreeing. They were saying, okay, we will do this. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to the churches in the Galatian region, warning them and, and, and imploring them of the danger of giving themselves to that message. And so Paul wrote to correct this perversion of the gospel that was influencing the churches in the Galatian region. Again, in chapters 1 and 2, he gave to them his own experience of how God's grace was revealed to him. A man who was a Jew that was steeped in all of those traditions and customs, who gave himself to the Levitical system, and yet how Jesus Christ reached him by the grace of God and saved him apart from the law. He shares with them his own experience. In chapters 3 and 4, he proves to them doctrinally that his teaching is biblical. That this isn't something new or something that he dreamed up while he was just in the desert somewhere. But rather it's something that from the beginning God foretold even when he called Abraham the man who would be the first Jew. The father of the Israeli people. And then in chapters 5 and 6 he takes the teaching that he gave in chapters 3 and 4 and he applies it to them personally. Now as we break the barrier into chapter 5 and we begin looking at Paul's application, we will see that he more or less now takes everything that he has shared with them thus far and he kind of aims it at them. It's almost as though he's been, you know, doing something, you know, painting this picture or something and now he, he just shifts the whole easel and he points it right at the people that he's speaking to his audience and he says, look at it. And, and it's as though it's this giant mirror that's reflecting back on them or this bright shining light that now is being turned right on them and he's putting it to them and saying, now you have to deal with this. You've given to this error. You have gone astray. You've turned aside from the simplicity of the gospel of Christ. And and this isn't just something that is conceptual or something that applies to the person that's sitting next to you or, you know, like the kind of thing where you would give the CD to someone and say, well, this message really was for them, you know. But no, he's saying, no, this message is for you. And he now turns the spotlight, the searchlight, right upon them as he's going to challenge them now to deal with this. 
And so he sums up his point in the first part of this chapter in verses 1 through 6 by basically conclusively stating to them that the law cannot produce salvation. Verse 1, he says, Stand fast, therefore. And whenever you see the word therefore, you always have to look what it's there for. Because the word therefore is connecting the present thought with the previous thought. And he says, stand fast, therefore, in light of everything that I've said to you this far. My conclusion, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. That is, free from the law. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Jesus Christ has freed us from the burden of the law. He has given us liberty from the shackles, from the weight, and from the condemnation that was produced in the law. And Paul is challenging them now to not slide back into religion, to trade in the relationship that they've been given with God back for religion, but to embrace it and to stand fast in it and to not be again entangled in the yoke of bondage. You recall in Acts chapter 15, when this very debate was brought before the apostles and elders there in Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas among them, and there was this great debate over what is required of the Gentiles as they come to Jesus Christ in salvation. And you recall that the apostle Peter, after hearing all of the arguments, he he stands up and he says, listen, you all know that God sent me to the house of Cornelius and that God chose that by my mouth the Gentiles should open. You know, the, the salvation. And then in verse 10, he says to them, he says, why tempt ye God to lay a burden or a yoke upon the neck of the disciples that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? And he speaks of the law, this Levitical system that couldn't save anyone as this yoke of bondage that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. And it's the same term that Paul uses here in verse 1 as he exhorts them and he says, Do not be again entangled in the yoke of bondage, but stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. And then he gives to them the consequence of rejecting his counsel. In verse 2, he says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you are circumcised, that is, if you adhere to the demands of the Judaizers and you give in to what they're trying to get you to do, if you say, okay, just in case grace isn't enough, I will be circumcised, I will do it. Paul says, be careful, because if you are circumcised, he says, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised. And and he's speaking of it in the context of those that would say, I am becoming circumcised in order to gain favor from God. That the purpose for me going through this ritual is because it's a requirement for me to be saved. And Paul is saying that I testify to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. You recall last week how we talked about how God, in a sense, by giving the law to humanity, He handed us the bill for our sin. And we talked about the weight of that debt and the excessiveness of it and our inability to pay it back, even in the least. And that God, by His grace, after letting us feel the weight of the debt and understand the depths of our depravity and the price that would be required for it to be paid off, That in God's love, he sent his son to pick up the tab. Not just to write a check, but to work it off. The grace of God in the person of Christ. And what Paul is saying to them here is that if you, in a sense, say, Okay, you can foot the bill, but I'm still going to pay for the appetizer. He's saying, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. I either pay the whole bill or I pay none of the bill. And if you in your heart are saying, well, you know, I'm going to be circumcised just in case because it eases my conscience. I'm going to pay for this section of it. I'm going to cover my own salvation as it, in regards to this one thing. Then Paul says, no, no, then you are a debtor to do the whole law. The whole bill yet remains in your hand. It is either Christ or nothing. It is not a mix of Christ 
and my religious customs, Christ and my adherence to the law, Christ and my rituals and and religion. It is Christ or it is nothing. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. It is just Jesus. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever you are, that are justified by the law. He says, you are fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness that's by faith. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by love. He has freed us from those customs, from those rituals. And he's given us his love in its place. The law cannot save. And so verses 1 through 6 are really a summation, kind of a a single paragraph summation of everything that Paul has been saying to the Galatians thus far, that the law cannot save you. And now in verses 7 through 12, he quickly addresses the perversion. Remember back in chapter 1 when when he said to them that if any man perverts the gospel of Christ or preaches to you another gospel, then let him be accursed. And essentially he is indicting the Judaizers, the legalizers, for corrupting and polluting the gospel of Christ. And he takes these few verses right here, verses 7 through 12, to address this whole perversion that has come and the concept of perverting the gospel. And essentially what he's saying to them is that perversion, the perversion of the truth, always comes through the persuasion of men. Look with me at verse 7. He says, you did run well. You did run well. Who did hinder you? that you should not obey the truth. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Or I'm sorry, verse 8. This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. But I have confidence in you through the Lord, that you will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. Now, throughout the history of the church, from the time of its inception on the day of Pentecost, and even into the present day, there has always been a problem in the church with heresy, with false doctrine, with things that corrupt and pollute, you know, the the gospel of Christ. And and notice in verse 7 what it is that Paul ascribes as the source of corruption and pollution of the gospel. He says, Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? It's always a who, not a what. And then in verse 8, he defends God and he says that this persuasion, or really the corrupt doctrine that they embraced, how they were persuaded to embrace a false gospel, he said this persuasion cometh not from him that calleth you. False teaching within the church of Jesus Christ is always the fault of men who do one of three things. Either they ignore the Bible completely and they put their ideas or their personal revelations above what God has already revealed in Scripture. The the, the common and inevitable result of doing that is going to be false doctrine, heresy, a polluted gospel. When someone puts their ideas higher than the Bible. And there's no shortage of those people in the church today. I'm sure you're well aware of that. The second is when people twist the Bible or take the scripture out of context in order to make it say what they want it to say. To try to manipulate or to do something to gain control over or to you know gain profit by or in some way they twist the word of God and they corrupt it and then sow seeds of you know falsity in in the the, the ears of the hearers and, and the doctrine is corrupt or it will be shifted by a degree that seems innocent enough, but over the long course of things it runs the church off its destination. Or the third is when they don't take time to thoroughly search the scripture to prove if something really is in the right context. You know, is this truth, is this doctrine in the right place, you see? Deception or perversion of the gospel or of the truth of scripture never comes from the Bible itself. 
You will never find yourself going down a, a, a stray path or believing in a false doctrine simply by reading the Bible. It always comes through men who have done one of those three things. The Bible is the only shield that we have to keep us or defend us from false doctrine, from false teaching, and from its effects upon our lives. Psalm 119, 105, the psalmist declares and he says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That his word will illuminate the steps that we're to take. We'll never be led astray by simply giving ourselves to a study of God's word. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2.15, exhorting him as a young Christian. And he said, study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Because the word of God is going to set you in the right course. And you'll never be ashamed as the Galatian believers are ashamed here as Paul has to correct them and say, you've given yourselves to a false gospel. It will never happen if you just study the word of God. Again, in the same letter to Timothy, he wrote again, Paul, and he says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be thorough and complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That all you need is the word of God. You don't need a book by the latest theologian or the latest author or to latch on to the latest trend that is going through the hallways of the church and all the rest. You don't need any of that. What you need is to give yourself to the study of the word of God. And as the spirit of God sheds light upon the word of God, you're going to find that your path is made straight and that you're in the right place. You're believing the right thing. This persuasion... This falsity cometh not from him who calls you. God will never lead you down a wrong path as you just give yourself to a study of his word. Now, the problem with a little bit of false doctrine is that it always leads to a lot of false doctrine. What does he say? He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so Charles T. Russell, the man who founded what is today the Watchtower Society, the Jehovah's Witness, it started in Europe as a group of home Bible studies. But as his personal revelations began to trump the clear teaching of Scripture, the truth began to be altered. Oh, well, we are the one true church. We are the 144,000. Oh, it's just a small error. It's really no big deal if you believe that until... There's over 144,000 believers in that thing. Now, oh no. Well, now we got to change more scripture. And a little leaven begins to spread. And so more scripture is corrupted and changed. And, and rather than just repenting and saying, no, I, I overstepped my boundaries in the word of God. Now I've got to corrupt the word of God further. And it comes to the point where now you can't even take a Bible and prove Jehovah Witness doctrine. You need to have the New World Translation, their own specific translation of the Bible, where they just cut and paste and change whatever they want so that it fits their belief system. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. The same thing is true with the Mormons and all of the cults, but it happens in the church as well. Is that now just, just a small thing, and now I have to change more, I have to corrupt more in order to keep, my, it's kind of like when you tell a lie and then you have to keep lying to keep the lie from being exposed that you told in the first place. And then you get yourself in a lot of trouble. See, and Paul is saying that any persuasion that is false, it, it doesn't come from him that calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Read your Bible, he's saying. And he says, I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubles you the one who authors this perversion, who sways you through his persuasion, he will bear his judgment, whosoever he is. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, then why do I yet suffer persecution? For then is the offense of the cross ceased. See, the cross, Jesus said, would be a stumbling block to the Jew because the cross would deliver men from the tra traditions and the rituals of Judaism throughout the years. 
And Paul is saying, if I be a preacher of ritual, a preacher of circumcision, then I'm negating the effectiveness of the cross, and therefore there's no need for them to follow me around and say that I'm teaching weird things. The offense of the cross is ceased, but the offense of the cross is that Jesus Christ paid the price for my sins. Now, you and I, we have experienced the offense of the cross. I I, I know that I have personally. I was brought up in a religious home. Not a Christian home, a religious home. It bore a Christian name, but it was not a Christian home. And the Christian home and the Christian, quote, unquote, you know, heritage that I was brought up in, there was ritual, there was duty, there was sacrament, there was, you know, painstaking attendance to meetings and obligations and, and all of these things for all these years. And at the ripe old age of whatever I was, when I said I ain't going anymore... You know, then there was no ritual, there was no rite, there was no obligation, there was no painstaking attendance at meetings and whatnot. But then I came to Jesus Christ. And the cross of Christ cleansed me of all of my sins. And a fire was lit inside of me that I then took to this home that I was brought up. And I said, listen, you can be saved by grace through faith. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to give. You don't have to... So you're saying that for all these years, I went to this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this. And that you ran away from it the second you were old enough to make a decision for yourself, and you lived however you want, and now you can just come and say, Jesus saved through faith, and you're saved, and I'm not? Yes. (laughs) See, that's the offense of the cross. Because the offense of the cross says that your religion is worthless. It does nothing for you. Your ritual, your tradition, your list of things that you have done, this cherished, framed, monumented thing, list of all the good that you've done in your life that you're clinging to in hopes that someday God will accept you because you're better than that guy is worthless as it relates to your salvation. And that is the offense of the cross. And that is what Paul is talking about. If I yet preach circumcision, If there was any merit in any of the things that I've done, then the offense of the cross has ceased. There is no need to persecute me. He says, I would that they were even cut off which trouble you. So Paul gives to them this kind of summation of what he thinks of those that have perverted their church and caused this legalism to enter into their walls and affect them and affect their course. So verses 1 through 6, he concludes that the law cannot save. In verses 7 through 12, he says, this is what I think of this perversion and this persuasion that has come and those that have brought it. And now in in verses 13 through 26, he really gets into now answering the question that all of us have as it concerns this, this concept of grace versus law. And that is, how do I now use this glorious liberty that I've been given in Christ? Remember in verse 1, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. Don't be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Don't fall back into religion and custom and law, but hold on tightly to the freedom that you've been given in Jesus Christ. And, And the question is, well, how? What does that mean? How do I use this liberty? What's it for? And without the law, how does this flesh out in my everyday life, Paul? And so in the remainder of the chapter, Paul gives to them three answers to this question, three answers to the question of how do I use this glorious liberty? And the first thing that he brings to them is he shines this light now on their path. As he tells them that liberty from the law is not a license to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. That liberty from the law is not a license to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Look with me at verse 13. He says, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now again, thinking again of that weight of debt that we've been placed under. 
you know, as the law is laid on us and our sin is revealed and we recognize our need that we have to do something about this sin debt that we owe and we feel the weight of it. And then that weight is taken off as we come into salvation by Christ. He comes into our life. He reveals the blood. He reveals the cross. He says, forgiven. It's paid in full. To Tetelestai, it is finished. Your debt is wiped away. You are saved by grace through faith. And you are no longer under this law, this burdensome law. You're not under it anymore. And as a person comes into the realization that they are not in debt to keep the law of God any longer, that is going to lead to one of two things. If I come to you and I say, there are no rules, all things are lawful, there is no law for your life concerning your salvation and your relationship with God, you're completely free. That's going to do one of two things. That is either going to produce within you a liberty or a license to sin and to do whatever you want, to live like you want, or it's going to produce in you a love for the one who freed you from the burden of the debt. It's going to do one or the other. It's going to give you a license to indulge the flesh or a love for the one who freed you. Jesus was invited to eat at the house of a man named Simon who was a Pharisee. And the Pharisee was proud to have Jesus there. He was the talk of the town and you couldn't get near a house that Jesus was in. If he was in town, the streets were flooded with people. If he would go to one side of the lake, the people would rush there. If he would go to the other, the people would be there. And Jesus accepted the invitation and went to Simon's house for a meal that day. While he was there, a woman who, the Bible says that she was a sinner, that she was a sinful woman, and the word that's used for it is unchaste. And the context is that she was sexually impure. She was an immoral woman. And it says that she came into the house and she broke an alabaster box of ointment over Jesus' head and she began to anoint his head and his feet and to wipe them then with her hair and and, and just through the tears of her appreciation and her affection, the Bible tells us that this man Simon, the host of this meal, that he looked and it says that he just thought within his mind that if this man were a prophet that he would know what manner of woman this is that touches him. He would know. Doesn't he understand who this woman is? And it says that Jesus, the one who perceives the thoughts and sees right through to the heart, that he looked up and he challenged this man, Simon. He said, Simon, he said, you know, I came to your house for lunch today and, you know, I I accepted the invitation. And, uh, you know, you didn't give me any water for my feet. You didn't. Do, do really anything even in the least bit, you know, hospitable for me that, now that since I've been here. He said, this woman, since she came in, she's anointed my head and my feet and she hasn't stopped washing them with her tears since this time. He said, Simon, if a man, if two men are in debt, the one for 500 denarii or 500 pence and the other for 50, and neither one of them has money to pay and so the creditor forgives both debts, He said, Simon, which one is going to love the more? And Simon said, well, I suppose it would be the one that was forgiven the 500. Jesus said, you're a smart man, Simon. He said, this woman is a sinner, and her sins are many, and she's been forgiven. And those that forgive or are forgiven much love much. They show much love. And the implication was that, Simon, you're so self-righteous, You're so concerned about this woman's supposed license to sin that you can't see your own need or feel the weight of your own debt. And so therefore, the result in your heart is that there's very little love. This woman who's been forgiven, who understands what her sin has cost and understand the price that will be paid on her behalf, she's filled with such love because of the appreciation for how much she's been forgiven. They that are forgiven much love much. And see, for a person who has felt the weight of their sin, that's understood the cost and what it means and what it would be had it not been paid for me and what it is because it has, that person who understands the love of Christ and the greatness of his sacrifice, that person who's freed from this burden of the law is not going to go out and immediately accrue a new debt. They're going to say, look at what has been done for me. 
Look at how much I've been forgiven. Look at what's happened in my life. And their response toward the one who paid the debt is not going to be to go and swipe the credit card again. But rather, they're going to rejoice in what he's purchased on their behalf. And they're going to live their life completely for him in love, seeking to be in fellowship with him, seeking to know and to do his will. That's what they desire. And a person who has felt the weight of their sin and finds forgiveness and freedom, the place that the law once occupied within their life will be replaced by love towards the one who set them free from its debt. In verse 14 it says, For all of the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. In another place it is written that love is the fulfilling of the law. The place that the law once held within the heart of a believer, once they realize what Christ has done, it is replaced by love. And the Bible says that love is the fulfilling of the law. Well, what does that mean? Another young man came to Jesus and he asked the question. He said, Master, what is the great commandment in the law? What's the, what is the supreme will of God? If you were going to sum it up into one phrase, one sentence, what's the highest command? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And he said, the second is like unto it, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. And they have a little bit of a discussion, but then Jesus concludes the matter by saying, upon these two, love God and love your neighbor, upon these two, he said, and I love this terminology, he said, on these two, hang all the law and the prophets. Interesting, isn't it? On these two, man's relationship with heaven, with God, the vertical relationship in the life of a person, heaven to earth, a man's relationship with God, the vertical. A man's relationship with his fellow man, the horizontal. What is it? It's a perfect picture of a cross. And it says that upon these two hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus himself being the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He hung on them. He fulfilled them, see? He was the completion. He was the love that fulfilled the law. But now he tells us that love, to have love of God filling our hearts, filling our lives, is going to cause the law automatically to be filled within our lives. How's that? Well, what were the first four commandments? They all concern man's relationship with God. You shall not have other gods before me. You shall not worship idols. You shall keep holy the Sabbath day. They were all laws concerning man and his relationship with God. The last six commandments were all laws concerning man's relationship with man. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. Honor your father and your mother. You know, all things that deal with our relationships among each other. Now listen, if you are filled with the supernatural love of God and you are walking with God in a love relationship, guess what? You're not going to have idols in your life, things that you place higher than God because you love God. You're not going to make a graven image and bow down to it because you, you love the true and the living God. Why would you give yourself to something that's a dead shadow or a dead idol? You're automatically going to fulfill it. If the love of God has reached you and is overflowing through you towards others, you're not going to steal something from your neighbor. You're not going to covet what he has. You're going to not be jealous of him. You'll be jealous for him. You'll want him to do well because you're satisfied. You're filled with the love of God. You're going to. And so therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. When love is real and present within me, it's automatic. It isn't that I'm going to try real hard and I'm going to put forth this Effort, and I'm going to keep the law of God. No, no, no. When the love of God saturates your soul, the law of God is fulfilled automatically within your life. Upon these two hang the law, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. So Paul is saying to them that, listen, this liberty that you've been given in Jesus Christ is not a license for you to fulfill the lusts of your flesh. Oh, I'm free from the law. I can live like I want. But rather, it's the provision for love to now motivate your life. And you will be walking rightly when you allow the love of God to replace the law of God within your heart. He goes on in the second point of application he gives to them is that liberty from the law enables me to lead a holy life. 
Look with me again here at verse 16. He says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Here Paul introduces this concept to us, this incredibly powerful concept of walking in the Spirit. What does this mean to walk in the Spirit, Paul? What do you mean by this? Walking in the Spirit takes the Christian life and it internalizes it. See, the law, everything that was in the Old Covenant, the rules, the regulations, the rituals, all of those were outward. They were things that that were presented to me in an outward way and then I would observe them and I would seek to conform my life through my effort and behavior to do the things that were written in the law. It was a completely external relationship that the law of God had with my life. But when I came to Christ and was set free from that, and the Spirit of God moved inside, what was once a religion that I had to adhere to, now became a life that moved inside. It was internalized. It was made invisible to me. It's now spiritual. It isn't physical any longer. It used to be paper that changed my behavior, but now it's alive, and it's in me, and it changes my heart. The second thing that this walking in the Spirit represents and means is that it moves every bit of my life into the here and now. And listen to me, because this is probably the most critical and important thing for any Christian to understand if they're going to live victoriously in this world. Is that the Christian life cannot be something that is past and and future, or even past, present, and future. The Christian life is always something that is right now. The law deals with the past and the future. Well, this is what was written in order to help me to know what to do when the time comes. It it, it crosses the boundaries of past, present, and future. But the Spirit, or walking in the Spirit, deals with the here and now only. What did Jesus say? He said, take no thought for your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. Don't think about tomorrow. He said, for tomorrow will worry about itself. He's like, this day has enough problems of its own. And see, walking in the Spirit doesn't deal with the past and the future. Walking in the Spirit is something that I do now, see? And what Paul is saying to this group of people and to us is that the key to, Christ, to victorious Christian living, living is found right now. The key to a holy life is found for you right now. The key to the Christian life is not what are you going to do when the situation comes up. Or how will you handle it when such and such happens? But rather, are you walking with him spiritually, being satisfied by him in fellowship with him right now? Because right now is the key to victory in every moment of your life. It's right now. And that's what it means to walk in the spirit. See, under the law, you make yourself a list. These are the things that I'm going to do. The seven habits of highly effective Christians. And you begin to... Make yourself a list of all the things that you're going to practice. And these are the things that I'm going to do. And what you are doing is that you are externalizing the Christian life. You're making a list. I'm going to to make these things happen. I'm going to do it. And what you are doing is basically depending upon yourself, making promises and all of these kind of things to try to bring forth a right life or a victorious type of life. But to walk in the Spirit... Is not to make lists and keep laws and do promise keepers and promise cards and covenant things. and It's not that, but rather it's to employ the power of the Spirit of God within your life to help you and to empower you in each moment to do His will. It's not depending upon yourself and your efforts, but it's depending on the Lord in every moment of your life to make the right choice or to be victorious in the situation. See, to walk in the Spirit, you ask yourself, well, how, how is it that I'm going to handle the boss when he comes on me the way that he comes on me? How, how am I going to handle that temptation or that situation, whether it's, you know, the crying baby or the unruly child or the annoying spouse, you know, or, you know, whatever it is. Or how am I going to handle that fourth slice of pizza or that pack of cigarettes that's staring me in the face while I'm there in line at the gas station? How, see, it isn't going to be, your victory is not going to be when you wake up in the morning and say, I'm not going to do this today. I'm not going to do this today. I'm not going to do this today. I'm going to, I'm not going to do it. Psalm 101, I 
will set no unclean thing before my eyes. I'm not, that's not it. See, because I found in my life that my desiring to do good, coupled with my promising I'm going to do it and my purposing to do it, it yields very little power when the moment actually comes. However, if I'm walking in the Spirit, it's not a question of what am I supposed to do when I face this problem, this temptation, this frustration. But rather, it's a split-second moment of fellowship with Christ where I'm asking, what would you have me to do? Do you understand the difference? What should I do, and what would you have me to do? It isn't the Jesus that I heard from this morning when I was having my devotions, or the Jesus that I'm going to have to report to later when I have my evening devotions. It's Jesus who is in me right now, empowering me and enabling me to do what's right in my life. So when that word comes from that annoying person that you work with, and everything within you is rising up and saying, just smack them, you know. That split second where you say, Lord, empower me. Or when you just yield for a half a second to listen and God says, don't do it. And you obey. You know, you yield. See, it isn't a law or a list. It's in this moment right now, how am I handling what it is that's before me? What's in front of me? When I can go up to the buffet line for the seventh time, you know, Or when I'm faced with that temptation in the gas station. You know, or when the boss says, do you want to work late on a Wednesday? No, Lord, this this isn't for me. This is for them. No, just kidding. You know. (laughs) How are you going to handle it in that situation? See, the presence of God and the power of the Spirit of God within me will enable me to do what's right, to do His will in the moment. All I have to do is wait upon him, yield to what he, what, really what I already know he wants me to do. We know what's right. And the blessedness is that he gives us the power to do it. And Paul says, if you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Now, the closer that a person gets to the Lord and the more experience they have in him working in their lives, the more they'll yield to him. Because they trust Him. I I yield my thoughts, my plans, my desires, my hobbies. I trust you more. I love you more. I'll give you more. And the presence of God becomes richer in the person's life. It's interesting to me that God, when He spoke to Moses, and and Moses said, what's your name? Lord said, tell them I am. I would hate to have to say that, you know. What? I am? But God said, yes, tell them I am that I am. He didn't say, I was, and he didn't say, I will be. He said, I am. Because what God desires to be in the lives of his people is what you need right now. You need victory right now. You need power over temptation right now. You need help in your marriage right now. You need healing in a relationship right now. See, he's the I am. We say, well, I'm going to pray about that tomorrow. No, no, he's here now. Yeah, I asked God for help when I was, no, 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 now. It's right now. And he says, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Liberty from the law enables me to lead a holy life. And then finally, number three, liberty from the law, and this is the kicker, this is kind of the bad news about the good news, if you would is that liberty from the law does not mean that there is no longer a battle against sin. Liberty from the law does not mean that there is no longer a battle against sin. Paul goes on to explain in verse 16, or I'm sorry, verse 17. He says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. The flesh and the Spirit. And these two things are contrary one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. That is the recipe for a battle right there. 
One of the things that I love going through with my kids, and we do this often because we have to, because they're kids, and I need to hear it too. I ask them the question, I'll say, hey kids, how many people are living inside of your body right now? And they're trained, you know, to answer these questions, you know, so they're just answering what they know is the right answer. But they say, two dad, you know. And I say, okay, who are they? And they'll say, us? And I say, yes. And they always say, and Satan. I go, no, no, no. No, let's go through this again. Satan does not live inside you. You're sealed by the blood of Christ. He doesn't share space with the devil. Let's do this again. Who lives inside of you? Us and Jesus, right. You and the Spirit of God. Both of those things are living inside of you right now if you are a believer in Jesus Christ because the Bible says he stands at the door and knocks and if any man opens, he comes inside. And so Jesus Christ at the point of salvation moves inside and all of a sudden a power struggle begins. Because inside the heart of every human, there are two things. There is a throne and there is a cross. And one of the two is going to be on one or the other. If Jesus is on the throne, then that means you're on the cross. And if Jesus is on the cross, it's because you are on the throne. And this struggle begins to happen inside over who is going to rule, who is going to reign in my life, the flesh or the spirit. I love the way the Bible illustrates this in Genesis chapter 25. Isaac, the son of Abraham, he gets this incredible woman, Rebecca. She's beautiful, you know, and and God just gloriously puts them together. He's the heir of the promise, but there's a problem. She's barren. She can't have children. And so they're married and a bunch of years pass and she says, hey, what's the story? Are we going to have kids or are we going to have to go through what your parents went through, you know, and be a hundred years old or something? And so Isaac prays and he asks God to help and God intervenes and Rebecca conceives, but something happens. There's something going on as the belly begins to bulge and as, you know, the pregnancy begins to, you know, move into its terms, there's, there's an uncomfortableness there's there's something going on inside and so she says hey isaac if this is some blessing from god then why am i thus why am i struggling like this what's this pain that i'm feeling if this is a blessing if i'm supposed to be blessed then why the pain and so isaac takes it back to the lord and he says lord what's the story here and god gives his answer he says listen here's what's going on there's twins in the womb He says, two nations will be separated from Rebecca's womb. There are two natures. Nations, it's a a derivative of nature. There are two natures in there. They're contrary the one to the other. That pain that she's feeling, there's a war going on, a struggle between the two. And God says, listen, one is going to be stronger than the other, but the elder shall serve the younger. Now think about that for one minute. Two natures, two nations inside. They're wrestling, they're fighting for control. One of them is stronger, and by implication, that's the older one. The older one is stronger. It is prevailing over the younger one, but God says, no. The elder shall serve the younger. The younger is to be the dominant. The weaker one is to be the dominant one. And so she gives birth, and of course Esau, red, a man of the earth, the Bible says, a man who could care less about the things of God, who could care less about the promises of God, a man who did as he pleased, who obeyed his primitive nature. And on the other hand, Jacob, a man who was concerned about eternal things, much weaker, much more homely in the sense, not a man's man by any stretch, but one who loved God and was concerned about the things of God. And Esau, the dominant one, gained the favor of his father. But ultimately, it would be Jacob that would rule over him as he took the blessing or was the heir of the promise that God had. It's an incredible illustration of this concept of the flesh and the spirit within us. Because we get saved and everything that is alive, everything that's holy, everything that's righteous about the spirit of God moves inside. But at the same time, this carnal, sinful, selfish nature still resides within me and thus the struggle begins. And we pray like Rebecca did, if this is such a blessing, I mean, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, it's a blessing, but 
why am I thus? Why is there this war? Why is there this struggle going on? And if you would pause to pray, you would hear the same answer that Isaac heard. There are two natures in your womb, so to speak. There are two natures alive within you, and they are at war with each other. And one is stronger than the other. But listen, the elder shall serve the younger. Now, let me ask you, of the two people that are living inside of you that have been born within you, which one's older, the flesh or the spirit? The flesh, right? You were born into this world, and I'm watching it. I have a little tiny baby, and when he wants to be held, he wants to be held. He doesn't care what time it is. He doesn't care what hour or what mommy's doing or what everybody else is going on. This is my time. Me. My. Now. His first word, I am a prophet, will be no. His second word will be mine. Because that is the way they are. That's how they come. See? And this selfish Esau nature is in us from the time that we're born. We are weaned upon fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our mind. It's what we do as humans. It's our human nature. But at a point in our lives when the truth is illuminated and we understand sin for what it is, the Bible calls it being born again. John chapter 3. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot. And at that point, the Spirit of God is born within us. A much younger, new nature comes to life within us when the Spirit of God is alive. And the struggle begins. The desires of my flesh and of my mind, the corrupt nature that I'm so desiring to satisfy and to live within, and that promises me such peace but leaves me in such misery, and then this still small voice of the Spirit, that says and speaks peace upon our lives, that promises joy that's lasting, that quiets us in the love of God. And yet we find it so weak, so unable so often to subdue the desires and the will of this flesh that I have within me. The struggle ensues. And Paul says, listen, the reason why you're having that battle is because the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. I I want to, in my mind, serve Christ. I want to give myself to the things of God. I want to be obedient always and always choose the right thing and always follow the will of God and always yield to the spirit and always walk in the spirit. And to will is present with me. But how to perform it, I don't find it. Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. That's right. Weak spiritually. The flesh is very strong, carnally. We relate it to to, to ourselves in that way, you know. You cannot do the things that you would. It's human nature. It comes naturally. Now, in verse 19, he describes for us the nature of the flesh. He's going to say, this is it. You, wanna, you want a personality profile of your flesh? Listen, it doesn't matter if you're Italian, if you're German, if you're Russian, if you're Chinese. None of that matters. Your flesh is described, verses 19 through 21. He says, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, that's drug use, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. The list goes on, Paul says, and by saying and such like, which I tell you, Before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Those that are born into this flesh and that allow this flesh to just govern and rule their lives and that never yield themselves to the Spirit of God and come to the point of salvation, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, isn't it amazing that this is what we are? I mean, that's the flesh. That's the way. When you are born because of the corruption of sin that you've inherited from Adam, that's what's in your heart. What's amazing about that is that that's what you were on the day that God saved you. Isaiah the prophet says that our most righteous acts are like filthy rags to God, like refuse before him. The Bible says that while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. 
that he was fully aware of what we were. And on our furthest day, when we were furthest from him, that was the day that he chose to say, I'm going to die for them and pay the sin debt and purify their hearts, purify their minds, give them new life. This is the nature of our flesh. Now, I would love to go through and describe all of those things, but I don't think I have to. Now, verse 22, he gives to us the nature of the Spirit. The second entity that moves inside of us at the time that we're saved. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, he says, there is no law. And we understand that. That makes perfect sense to us. You know, now there's some that say here that, you know, the fruit is singular, that the fruit is love, and that joy, peace, temperance, all those things are descriptive of love. Sure, okay, fine. I think that it's all of it, that, that it is singular, the fruit of the Spirit, but that the fruit of the Spirit is, it, it, all of these things are intertwined with it. It is just perfect purity, perfect life perfect the way you know that when we taste it we understand it you know that this is what life is all about but notice the contrast he speaks of the works of the flesh in verses 19 through 21 and he speaks of the fruit of the spirit in verses 22 and 23 and they're completely contrary to each other there's no place at all where the two things dovetail or come together or give and take they don't agree they hate each other And yet both of those things live inside of us. It's a struggle. It's a battle. It's something that we face constantly. So how do we deal with it? He tells us in verse 24. He says that they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its affections and its lusts. To walk in the Spirit means to choose 10,000 times a day that Jesus Christ is going to sit upon the throne in my heart and that my flesh, this corrupt Old nature is going to hang upon that cross. In Galatians 2.20, Paul said, For I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the way to deal with this flesh, the way to win this battle that's going on inside of us, is to yield to the Spirit of God, what it calls walking in the Spirit, drawing from him, receiving from him, fellowshipping with him, and to crucify the flesh, not give in to the desires of it, not yield to it, not share time and say, well, I'm just going to indulge just a little. I'll, I'll cut back, but you know, I can't just crucify it. No, 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 crucify it. There's nothing good about it. I remember one time I was listening to um, a, a, a man who did a lot of marriage counseling, and he was counseling a woman, and she came in and she said, you know, I'm suicidal. I just, I want to, I just want to die. I want to kill myself. And he said that he, he would never, you know, tell anybody that he did this as he was telling us that he did this. He said, I said, he said, I said to her, I said, I think you should do it. And she goes, she said, what? And she was expect he's a pastor, you know, and he's expecting that. He's going, don't do that. Don't, you don't have to. And he just said, no, I think you should do it. Go ahead. How are you going to do it? And she was like, she was dumbfounded. Didn't know what to say. And he said, but wait, before you do it, can I ask you a question? He said, how's your vision? And she said, 2020. He goes, okay. Is your hearing okay? Yeah, hearing's good. Are you diabetic? No, no. How's your health? No, I'm in, I'm in good health, you know. And he said, yeah, you know, you look like you're in good health. You're in good shape. And he goes, you know, there's really no use killing your body. Your body looks like it's working just fine. He said, but maybe there's someone inside there that needs to die. You should kill yourself. Not your physical outward frame because, hey, listen, you're going to be real disappointed because all that happens then is that your heart stops beating and your blood comes out. But that which is inside lives on forever. That thing that's afflicting you that you're trying to get away from isn't going to go away because you jump off a building or do yourself in. What you need to do with it is crucify it. Crucify the flesh with its affections and its lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. 
Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another and envying one another. Liberty from the law does not mean, well, we're way over time, that, we, that there is no more battle. But listen, and, and Paul concludes with this, that victory in the Christian life comes as I abide in Jesus Christ, walking in the Spirit, and crucify the flesh by the power of His Spirit. I know that there are many of you, and, and the musicians can come, that tonight you're facing very intense battles. And, and the reason that I know that is because we are all facing very intense battles on one front or another. It's just the nature of this life. There's some of you that are struggling in parenting. Whether it's the unruly toddler or the wayward teenager, you just are at your wit's end. You don't know how to deal with them. You don't know how to talk to them. Every conversation just goes to the next level. Everything they do just wells up frustration within you and you find that you don't know how to respond. Some of you are struggling in your marriages. It seems like every time you're in the same room together, there can't be a peaceful word spoken between the two, but that one sharp word is uttered And then the sharp word comes back and just escalates into that next thing. And the next thing you know, they're shouting. And you just wonder, can this marriage even work? Is there any way that this could even work? Some of you are struggling with that frustrating person, maybe that you work with. Maybe it's a boss or a coworker. And it just seems that for some reason they've singled you out. You're the one that is going to take the brunt of their misery. So every day you have to deal with their irritation, whatever it is and however it comes. Some of you are struggling with depression. It seems like the affliction, no one else can see it and you just have to put your game face on wherever you are, but you know internally that you're being torn apart. It feels like that squeezing, you're being crushed from the inside and yet outwardly everything has to look like it's together. Some of you are struggling with Habits and addictions. Leftover elements of the old man, the sinful life. Cravings and desires that just are so strong. It seems like they can't be beaten. They can't be defeated. It doesn't matter what your struggle is. The answer to it is singular. It's not law. It's not, well, let's make a list. When I say these things, it bothers you. Or if I do these things, or when I leave my clothes on the floor, or when, you know, if I say this to my child, or when they spill the bowl of Cheerios for the seventh time, you know, or whatever it is, it's not going to be the list that you make or the promise that you make of how you are going to handle it in all of your strength and effort. But the solution comes when you and I, when we say, Lord Jesus, you said that you would live inside my heart. You said that your spirit would empower me to do your will. You said that you work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. That you'll finish the work that you started. That your thoughts towards me are for peace. And I pray now, give me the power of your spirit. Not for a moment later, but for now. Teach me what it means to walk in the spirit, Lord. And then when that moment comes and you walk in and you see that spouse across the room. And they come at you with that sharp word or that, that look, you know. That split second of just saying, Lord Jesus. And rather than biting back and taking it to the next level, you allow the Spirit of God to give a soft answer. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. And rather than escalating to the next level, the situation seems to be diffusing. And as you choose to just die to your rights, your desires, what you think you deserve, and to let the flesh be nailed on the cross and to let the same Christ who spread out his hands upon the cross, who was perfect, and let his creation nail him there, as you take that place upon the cross and say, you know what, maybe I am right, but I'm going to choose to be wrong for the sake of the relationship. Or for just maybe the Lord's sake. The relationship doesn't even matter to me anymore. It's so far gone, but for His sake. And healing begins. 
That moment when that addiction, that temptation, so strong, so powerful, is gripping you and calling out to you. And that one moment to just yield and say, Lord, you said you would empower me to do your will. And just this one moment, Lord, I'm yielding to you. I'm not giving in. Not by my strength. But as I just yield and give you place to empower me over this thing. The answer is, walk in the Spirit. And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This glorious liberty that we've received in Jesus Christ enables us to live victoriously. And it's available to all the people of God. Father, we just thank you tonight that your word just tells us everything that we need for life and godliness. I pray, Father, that you would take the fogginess of my words and that you would clarify it in the hearts of your people. And that these things would move from concept to reality, from paper to life. I ask right now that no matter what the struggle is that each person here might be facing, that, Lord, they would find power through your presence, through your love, through your spirit, that they would rise above and that they would live victoriously. In Jesus' name, let's all stand.